Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I've survived 2022 so far. I'm off to a conference next week in person. (laughs) They sent an email saying that it's going ahead and they'll have KN95 masks available for all attendees. This is the first I've really traveled since 2020 and I will be on the other end by the time you're hearing this. Hopefully I won't get stuck in an airport on either end. I do have people on both ends. That is helpful. Anyway, today we will finish book two of the Bibliotheca. As a reminder, I am using the freely available Fraser translation. In chapter 7 of book 2, we saw the death of Heracles, but he had children, so chapter 8 wraps up the story of his line of descendants. Heracles may be a god now, but his sons, collectively known as the Heraclids, are still on earth, and Eurystheus is not pleased. He declares war, so they flee. He chases them all over Greece until they finally reach Athens, where the Heraclids claim sanctuary at the Altar of Mercy. The Athenians take their side and kill all of Eurystheus' sons. Eurystheus himself escapes in his chariot, but not for long. Hylas chases after him, cuts off his head, and gives it to his grandmother, Alcmena. Alcmena gets her revenge by gouging out his eyes with her weaving pins. I'm rather partial to that detail. Anyway, safe from Eurystheus, the Heraclids set out to conquer the Peloponnese, which they do, and which they shouldn't have done because the gods respond by sending a plague. Okay, it's not so much the conquering that's the issue. The problem is that they didn't wait until the proper time. At least that's what the oracle has to say about the plague. So the Heraclids leave their newly conquered lands and settle in Marathon. Now, before they leave for Marathon, Tlepolemus accidentally kills Lycimnius Lik- uh, in a rather disturbing way. You see, Tlepolemus is beating his servant, and Lycimnius gets in the middle of it, which is wrong on so many levels. Anyway, because of that, Tlepolemus moves to Rhodes instead of Marathon. Hillis does indeed marry Ioli, as Heracles told him to do on his deathbed. He then goes to Delphi to ask how he and his brothers can return to the Peloponnese. The oracle says to wait for the third crop, which Hillis takes to mean three years. So he waits for three years and then takes his army to the Peloponnese. There's a break in the text at this point, so who knows how much detail our author provided about what happens next. There are some battles, and each side gets some wins, but Hillis is not successful. Eventually, his grandsons grow up and ask the oracle when they can return to the Peloponnese. The oracle again says to wait for the third crop, which Tenemos, one of these grandsons, finds to be a most unsatisfactory answer because that's exactly what Grandpa Hillis had done, and look at how well that worked out. The god shrugs and says it's not his fault Hillis didn't understand. In case you haven't worked it out yourself yet, the third crop is, of course, the third generation of Heracles' descendants. The god has to spell it out for Tenemus, both the part about the third crop and exact details on where he should go for this invasion. Now, Pactus. 
Tenemus realizes that he's that third crop, so off he goes to Nalpactus. In the ensuing battles, Aristodemus is killed by a thunderbolt, leaving behind twins named Eurysthenes and Procles. And that's not all that goes wrong. A soothsayer appears in such a frenzy that the army thinks he's a magician, so they kill him. So much for the fleet of ships and the famine. Yeah, that's the end of the army. Tenemus asks the oracle why this happened, and again, the oracle spells it out for him. He should banish the man who slayed the soothsayer for ten years, and then find the three-eyed one to be his new guide. So Hippotes, who threw the fatal javelin, is banished, and the rest set off to find the three-eyed one. They run into a man named Oxylus, who has a one-eyed horse. They decide that, collectively, this must be the three-eyed one the oracle mentioned, so they hire him as their guide. He does the trick. They start winning every battle. They even kill Tissimenus, whose dad just so happens to be Orestes. Yeah, that Orestes. But they lose some of their allies, namely Pamphilus and Demas, too. Having finally taken over the Peloponnese, Tenemus and his crew build three altars to great-great-grandpa Zeus, make the appropriate sacrifices, and then cast lots to decide who will rule which city. Argos, Lacedaemon, and Messini. The order is important. They do this by putting stones into a pitcher of water. Tenemus's stone is drawn out first, so he gets Argos. The two sons of Aristodemus, their stone is pulled out second, so they get Lacedaemon. But Cresphontes really wants Messini. So he actually puts a clod of earth in instead of a stone. And since the earth dissolves in the water, Cresfontes forces the other two lots to be drawn first, thus guaranteeing he gets his desired outcome of Messini. Like I said, the order is important. Argos, then Lacedaemon, then Messini. Now, I said three altars earlier, right? Well, there's one for each city. And on each altar, an animal appears. A toad for Argos, a serpent for Lacedaemon, and a fox for Messini. Fortunately, there are seers to explain what this all means. Toads aren't very strong walkers, so Tenemos should stay home in Argos. Serpents aren't great at attacking, so Lacedaemon is going to be vulnerable to outside attack. Foxes? Well, we all know that foxes are wily, and that is what we can expect from Messini and perhaps what we've already seen in Cresfontes' trick in the drawing of the lots. Tenemus decides that his daughter, Hirentho, and her husband, Deophantes, should inherit the throne instead of his three sons, so they find some hitmen to kill Tenemus. It doesn't go exactly as planned. Tenemus is killed, but the army decides to go along with his wishes that Herentho and Deophantes get to rule next. Cresfontes is also murdered, along with two of his sons, after which Polyphontes, true and proper Heraclid, takes over the throne of Messini. He also marries Merope, Cresfontes' widow, despite her objections. So it's a marriage in the political sense and something quite different in the personal sense. Merope manages to hide her third son away with her father, and when that boy is grown, he returns to kill Polyphontes and reclaim his father's throne. And that is the end of the chapter. Abrupt, but apparently as far as our author feels the need to go when discussing the line of Inachus and the descendants of Heracles.
things that stand out to me in this chapter. I already commented briefly on one, which is the use of Alcmini's weaving pins to gouge out Eurystheus's eyes. There are multiple instances in Greek mythology in which women use womanly things as weapons. There's another story about women using the pins they used to close the shoulders of their chitons, those whole cloth garments that you should be familiar with from pottery and statues and Disney's Hercules. In this case, though, it's weaving pins. And if there is one thing that we know, it is that proper women weave. Think of Penelope weaving the funeral shroud for Laertes, or Helen weaving a tapestry depicting the events of the Trojan War. This is women's work, and it's work that not all women do. It's that women of status do. They don't have to clean the house. They have maids to do that. They they have time to weave these magnificent tasters tapestries. It's not the work of housemaids. It's the work of queens, of women with status. And it's also where we see women finding their power, think again, of Penelope weaving that shroud and then undoing her work each night so that the suitors don't know that she's not really making progress. In this case, Alcmini uses it as a literal, literal weapon, not just figurative. She uses those tools of weaving as, as knives, which I, I just love this concept of women using womanly tools for power. The other thing that stands out is the plague that comes over the Peloponnese after the Heraclids conquer it. This is a thread that we see in Greek mythology of plagues and political power being linked. We see it in the Iliad when the leadership on the Greek side isn't behaving properly. The gods send a plague, right? We see it here. The Heraclids weren't supposed to take over the Peloponnese until that third crop, that third generation, and yet they do. So the gods send a plague. We even see it in Greek history. During the Peloponnesian War, there is a plague in Athens, and the people believe that it is a commentary from the gods on the current leadership of the city-state. And perhaps you saw this discussion in, oh, I don't know, 2020, whether uh, the current plague, as we could very easily call the COVID-19 pandemic, is a commentary on political leadership. Was it? Is it still? hard to say, but there is this through line from the ancient Greeks of linking plagues to political power. We see it in medieval European history that there are great uh, parades and processionals to from from the political leadership to appease the gods, to to try and get rid of various plagues that happened across the centuries very interesting take that it's hard not to see that that through line coming coming into the current era so what stands out to you are plagues really sent by the gods to tell us to do better pop over to the blog and share your thoughts it's at triumphyourclio.school.blog the url and maybe a link are in the show notes find me on patreon as triumphyourclio should you feel so inclined no pressure 
In the next episode, we'll have some more Heracles, only we will be calling him Hercules because our next piece of lit to cover is Seneca's Hercules Furens. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.